I think of ADHD as not just Adderall deficiency disorder, which everybody comes in sort of thinking, I, my kid needs a stimulant. No, ADHD in and of itself is a, a really important behavioral, neurobehavioral disorder that needs much more treatment than just medication. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Bereson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. And we're two child and adolescent psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. We are hoping to have a stimulating conversation with you today. We're going to talk about... Now, this is for Ritalin. Is that a tranquilizer? Stimulant. A stimulant? My God, she's hiring a kite now. We're going to talk about stimulants, myths, misconceptions, and how to manage the, uh, the shortage. And to help us talk through this is a very special guest. I think one of my oldest friends. Uh, how, how far back do we go, Tony? It's in the early 70s. Yeah, really. It's been amazing. What a long, strange trip it's been. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tony Rothstein, Dr. Rothstein, currently serves as the chief and chair of the Department of Psychiatry okay, at Cooper University Health Center. He's also a professor emeritus of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perelman School of Medicine, my alma mater, where he co-founded their adult ADHD treatment and research program. Tony's directed a program for ADHD through the lifespan. And I don't think there's anyone I know that has a better grasp of this complex disorder, often linked with other disorders. Uh, and the use, misuse, and myths and, uh, about stimulants and other medications, uh, and, and also about the behavioral ways for treating ADHD, because it's not all about stimulants, as we'll hear. And he's one of the lead singers in our child psychiatry band, Pink Freud and the Transitional Objects. I might add, he's also an amazing blues harp and harmonic, blues harp player. Tony, did you bring, did you bring your microphone? Did I didn't. You bring, did you bring your harp? No, I didn't bring my harp today. But um, okay, the, the harp wouldn't. The harp didn't fit in the bag. <laughs> no, I should have brought it along. Well, I'm really glad to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Really, it's got a, really a hot topic, as they say. Yeah. So, Tony, earlier this year, you did a fantastic job on NPR's uh, On Point to discuss the uh, ADHD drug shortage. And for those listening, please check out our media list uh, and the link to the On Point episode. The shortage is definitely still an issue for many families, so we definitely want to get to it. But we also want to bust some common myths and stimulant about stimulants uh, and about ADHD in general. But to make sure we're on the same page, maybe we should start by just talking about stimulants, what kind of drugs they are, what they're used for, and what they do to the brain. So, Tony... How would you define a stimulant? Well, a stimulant is a compound that's been really developed in order to uh, change the way the brain works. Um, The very first stimulant that was developed pharmaceutically was amphetamine, which was synthesized in 1887 in Berlin. Um, And it's related to a plant called mawang, and it originally was sold as a decongestant in the United States. Um, And finally, in 1935, um, there was noted that it was really effective in lessening the fatigue that people with depression were feeling. So it's technically speaking, amphetamine was the very first 
um, pharmaceutical released for the treatment of, of what we call low energy depression, not melancholic, but just the kind of depression that makes people tired. And it was used during World War II to help soldiers, you know, combat battle fatigue. Uh, both sides, by the way, in World War II used it, the Allies and the Axis forces. Um, and then it was used a lot in the 50s and 60s as a diet pill. Um, but in the, in, the, in the late 50s and early 60s, um, it finally be, was, was studied again. It initially was found to be helpful to kids with hyperactivity in the 1930s, but it really wasn't widely uh, released for treatment of children with hyperactivity until the 1960s. Um, similarly, the other class of, of medications we call stimulants are related to a compound called methyl, methyl, methylphenidate, and that was first synthesized in 1944 and introduced in the 60s, again, to treat ADHD and uh, hyperactivity in particular. In those days, it was called minimal brain dysfunction. Um, both of these medications, by the way, have been found to be useful in conditions other than attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. For example, they can augment the treatment of depression. Uh, they are also used for narcolepsy, falling asleep a lot during the day, and uh, a host of other of other conditions that I think you know listeners should know that even though we think of them primarily for the treatment of uh, of, of ADHD, it's not that's not their only use. And the first one was dexedrine, right? Dexedrine, or which is the right-sided molecule of amphetamine. It's dexedrine is technically dextroamphetamine. And that was, yes, that was widely, widely used in the 50s and 60s. The original one that was researched in the 1930s was benzedrine, which is actually the left and the right compound of uh, amphetamine. So it's a it's a mixture of the two. But right, dexedrine or dextroamphetamine is the was the one that was first introduced for treating. Uh, mostly children with ADHD. So do kids with ADHD have to take medication? Would, would, I mean, for instance, would therapy not be sufficient? Um, are stimulants the only option if they, if it is kind of determined they need medication? And if they do have to take medication, is it a lifelong kind of, is it a chronic treatment? Will they be on it for life? Well, those are, those are the, exactly the questions I hear all the time from parents. Every parent wants to know these Every questions. parent wants to know. Well, first of all, I think of ADHD as not just Adderall deficiency disorder, which everybody comes in sort of thinking, I, my kid needs a stimulant. No, ADHD in and of itself is a, a really important behavioral, neurobehavioral disorder that needs much more treatment than just medication, all right? The family and the child need to understand what the disorder is doing to their particular child, the behaviors they're having trouble with. It's, is it attention? Is it controlling impulses? Is it handling their moods? And certainly therapy is something we always start with because we want to make sure that the child, for example, is not given the, me the, the message that, well, you're, this is your pill to behave, you know, that that kind of notion is not a helpful one. Uh, what we're trying to say essentially is ADHD leads kids to have trouble controlling their impulses, trouble staying focused in school or after school, and, uh, you know, makes life difficult for them. And we try our best to offer treatments like uh, accommodations in school, 
uh, tutoring and other learning supports and parent training in how to raise a child who may not be listening all the time or maybe, you know, uh, doing things that they shouldn't. That being said, um, we've learned over the years, again, since the 1960s, um, I, I actually mentioned earlier, it was first discovered to work for kids with hyperactivity in the 1930s, but it wasn't really widely uh studied and, and and used until this 1960s. So for the last 60 years, we have a pretty good understanding of, of the fact that children with ADHD do very well on these medications if they are properly prescribed. But stimulants are not the only medical treatment. And as far as I can tell, lifestyle changes like giving kids a chance to exercise a lot, giving them choices in what they're doing, giving them breaks so that they're not getting bored, and minimizing overuse of of screens and technology, all of these things, as well as protecting sleep, all of these things are important healthy behaviors we try to we try to um, introduce into into our approach. And and one thing that you that you didn't mention that I think a lot of uh, that's kind of a hot topic is executive functioning. Oh yes, well that's that's another way of thinking about ADHD: being able to regulate yourself through space and time towards a distal goal. That's not immediately rewarding. You know, how do you stay on track when you're not getting, when you're bored or when you're not getting rewarded by what you're doing? How do you make choices? How do you prioritize? How do you say no to things that aren't really the most important things to do? How do you resist temptation? We could all use some help with this, by the way, given our current uh, ADD-inducing environment. But in kids with this predisposition, uh, it's really important to stick around and watch as they go and help them learn these executive functions because they don't do they don't learn it as easily. I kind of think of ADHD as partly a psychiatric disorder, but also a form of a learning disability that it just takes longer to learn certain tasks and it takes longer to master with ease repetitive behaviors that may not be all that rewarding. So yes, executive function is a big thing. Now, Khadija, you asked, do you need to be on it for your whole life? I never look at it that way. I think of ADHD as let's see how it helps this treatment, stimulant medication. Let's see if it helps your child. And at some point, perhaps they develop skills and coping mechanisms so they don't want or need to take the medication. Um, I've got patients who stop for a while and then come back years later saying, well, you know, I was okay for a while, but now I'm realizing the challenges are too difficult. I need to, you know, I think I need to go back on a medication. And then let's not forget that there are now um, non-stimulant medications available. To a large degree, those non-stimulants can offer alternatives for people who either don't tolerate the stimulant medications or who are at risk for some reason of taking them um, and or for individuals who don't want to be on stimulants. So so in terms of not wanting to be on them, let's just... Uh... How do you explain stimulants to your child? So let's say you're a parent and you've decided with your child's doctor that your child with ADHD could benefit from a prescribed stimulant medication. How do you explain the purpose of the medication in a way that doesn't affect their self-esteem? Let's say they don't want to be on meds. Let's right. say that, that, that they hate the idea of taking medications um, or, or because they have a hard time swallowing pills or because they're worried about changing who they are changing their personality um how 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 would how would you explain it to your kids 
if you really think that it could help them, if it, 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 it could help them in a way that they could learn some of these executive functionings, yeah, skills better, you know? Right. So first of all, it's important to, like I use the analogy of eyeglasses. I wear glasses. Lots of people wear glasses. If I could take my glasses off, it's harder for me to read. So I wear my glasses because it makes it easier to read. What we generally say is these medications help kids focus better and learn better and do things more easily that are hard for them. So it's really meant to make life easier, to make things more, more straightforward. And most kids, when you explain it that way, go, yeah, like I'm ready because they're tired of being, you know, either, you know, reprimanded for not getting their homework done or you know they don't like feeling bored easily they want to get involved in things and they can't um the other thing i say not to sort of dealing with the self-esteem is that a lot of kids already feel pretty pretty upset with themselves and so just explaining that adhd is not their fault um that they have a difference in the way they process information so your brain takes a little longer to process information you notice things that other people don't you're much more aware of, of of lots of things that are going on all around. But when you want to focus in and zero in on something, it's hard to screen everything out. So sometimes I use the analogy of like kind of helping you focus by putting something so that your eyes look at what you're trying to look at rather than constantly looking what's around you. Um, so th those are some analogies. I think to parents' worry um, about the, the potential harm to the child's self-esteem. I always say that this is not something we're going to stay, uh, we're going to continue to prescribe if it isn't visibly helping your child with the with the tasks in front of them. Like if it makes your kid feel bad, if your kid is really uh, hating taking it, then maybe it's time to wait for a while and 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 and, and offer a different approach to the difficulties. Um, so I, what's interesting to me is 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 that they may think that the meds lower their self-esteem, but almost every kid that I've seen with ADHD has low self-esteem because they can't do, they can't right. do what they're supposed to do. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> we talk about leveling the playing field with kids who play soccer, for example, I always like to say you're playing soccer, but the field you're on, you're, you're going uphill and the other folk, the other team is running downhill. So you've got to, this is going to level the field so that you're not running so hard to get the same things done. And uh, as far as what I hear a lot are parents' fears that somehow they're, they're going to harm their child's health. They're going to make it hard for the child to, uh, you know, ever learn these things without the medication. And what we always say is, no, the purpose is to improve learning and to pr improve the child's ability to, to get things done they need to get done. And ultimately, like you say, um, to counteract the, the, the feelings they have about the fact that they are not meeting the expectations they have or others have. But I'm very, very cautious, by the way, about don't want to change your child's personality. We don't want you to make your child subdued or over-medicated. That's not the goal. The goal is to have them be their best selves. And if the medicine helps them get there, that's great. And if it's not, we'll find something else. I think that's a great segue to uh, another question I have, because often parents are afraid. They're concerned about being making the safest choice for their child. And I do often reframe the idea of self-esteem and really point out to them how damaging 
struggling with ADHD can be to their self-esteem and how this can help. So I think that's a great um, point. And, and also, they're also worried about how can this affect my child negatively? So what are some of the side effects they should be concerned about and be on the lookout for? But yes. Also, should they be on the lookout for to understand and to know that this is helping? Because like you said, we want this to be a help, not a hindrance. Right, right. Well, thank you for pointing that out. Number one, we try the lowest dose that's effective, right? Because when you give too much stimulant, that's not good either. Um, I have a, a chart on my wall that shows what I call the inverted U. When you don't have enough of the of the of the neurotransmitters in your brain available to you to concentrate or to get things done, then you're inattentive and you're distracted and you're inefficient in what you're trying to do. When you have too much of the of those of those transmitters you're stressed out you're you're over you're either over focused or you're too sedated that's not what we want we want an optimal amount of 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 transmitters to get you focusing and be flexible in what you're trying to do and that's why we try and say that we try and start with one dose but we're going to we're going to try different doses to see what works best um, there's no one dose fits all or one size fits all to this. You have to individualize. As far as side effects, the most common ones we, we we talk about have to do with, for example, suppressing appetite. That's a big deal. You don't want your child not to eat. So you have to really be cautious about how the child's weight is, how their height is. You don't want to, in the early days when, when these stimulants were first introduced, um, they were given at higher doses than we give them now. And so turned out that, you know, pediatricians in particular and, and child psychiatrists noticed that there was an effect on growth. Um, so that's something we pay a lot of attention to, eating properly, growing, no, growing in a healthy trajectory. And if the child's losing too much weight, we have to make adjustments. A second problem is interfering with sleep. Now, this is fascinating because a lot of kids with ADHD don't sleep well. So you have to ask about how's the child sleeping, and if they're sleeping well, is this disrupting their sleep? But the opposite may be true as well. They might actually sleep better as a result of having having a little medication help them to settle back down and 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 have more active, productive days so that they're not um, um, overstimulated in the evening. Another side effect we talked about earlier was um, change in personality, which we really don't want to see. Uh, and in some children who are sensitive. Um, they may not like that. They may not like the way the medicine makes them feel. Occasionally, children will feel like it's hurting their stomach, and it's it's actually painful to take it because their stomach is 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 hurting them. We definitely make changes and adjustments in the medication. Then, uh, if it causes movements that child children don't want to have, like ticks, we we have to be very careful that we don't have those ticks become innate uh, disabling uh these are like squinting and 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 grimacing and 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 moving or making vocal utterances we definitely have to look for that and any other unusual behaviors or thinking processes if the child starts to talk like you know some like they're 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 not themselves we we immediately i immediately have the parents call me because that's a a really unwanted side effect now, the last one I want to mention, because it's been in the news lately, is people wonder about the long-term effects of stimulants. And it turns out that with a review recently of, of, of large data sets coming out of Scandinavia, uh, 
it turns out that long-term use of stimulant medication can cause a slight increase in both blood pressure and heart rate. Now, it's not, there's no evidence that that's causing any harm because they measured that as well. So there was no, there were no bad cardiac effects, but there was a rise in hypertension depending on how long the person had been on it and whether there was a family history or other problem with hypertension. So that's one caution I now bring forward, which is making sure that if there is a family history of hypertension, that we watch very closely and monitor over time whether there's any change in the child's blood pressure um, to be sure that they're not going to have uh, long-term effects. I saw that study as well. And I know we have talked, gone back and forth about the cardiovascular effects over over quite some time. And so that's important for us to make sure. We yes, you know, and it's glad, I'm glad you, because you, we've all been thinking about it. You know, there was about 20 years, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there was some concern about extended release um, mixed amphetamine salts causing cardiac deaths or cardiac arrhythmias. So the early concern was around arrhythmias, meaning rhythm disturbances that could be very, very, that could even be fatal for those that had structural heart dif differences. But, but larger studies in subsequent years found no ill effects. Um, so this is the first study, and it's a really important study for everybody to look at, does show that um, there is this small number of people who there, there's a larger incidence of, of, the, of, of the risk for hypertension. It doesn't mean you're going to get hypertension. It just means that the risk goes up, uh, especially if you've got uh, other factors at work. The other, if you look closely at the data from that study, um, you'll see that the the people with ADHD had higher rates of obesity by a major factor, um, which maybe for me anyway, was a, a bit of a, a, a question, which is how much did the obesity that there was in that group that was being treated for ADHD contribute to their higher blood pressures? But anyway, as long as we're watching for these things early, right. I always tell people, hey, if the side effects are a problem, we just stop. That's the other nice thing about stimulants. You can just stop them on a dime and, you know, maybe you experience a little bit of, of low energy and, and, and moodiness for a couple of days, but you don't have withdrawal. And so maybe not a side effect, but what about this idea of rebound? And so a lot of parents are concerned about that and, and some even complain. I think there was a, a parent who wrote into a magazine who wrote that they're really happy about the, side, the the effect of the medication during the school day, but in the evening, the wind downs are horrible and it feels like it's very hard for the family to engage in activities in the evening because of it. And so that's a that really, about? yeah, that's a really important observation. So rebound means that when the medication wears off, the brain goes back to being an ADHD brain rather than a treated ADHD brain, an untreated ADHD. And therefore, yes, you see a, 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 an excessive amount of activity, difficulty controlling behavior, a lot of impulsivity, a lot of moodiness. So we say a, a couple of things. First of all, if you know what time that's occurring, you try to spend time in there in that time period, not with high demand situations. That's a time to let the child unwind, you know, do something fun. You don't want to be doing homework <laughs> and you don't want to be asking kids to sit down at the table when they're really at that moment um, less able to control themselves. 
If it's severe, we sometimes add a dose of medication later in the day at a lower amount so that the evening goes better. Um, or we might try a non-stimulant medication, um, which I won't go into which ones, but you can try something that will reduce the, um, hype, the, the rebound and excessive hyperactivity in the evenings. So there's any number of ways to address it, but that's a really good question. How do you handle it? at home, most of all, be aware of it and, 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 and give a child time to, because once that period of rebound goes away, that's about an hour to, or, or two at the most, then the child is their usual self. And uh, you won't see that. They're, they may be a little hyper, but they won't be as bad as they were when they were first um, withdrawing, so to speak, or rebounding from the medicine. So it's kind of like making sure that we're aware and proactive and managing the environment. Exactly. Manage the, I think that's the key. You know, I think parents with children with ADHD have a big job on their hands because they have to constantly be assessing what's the environment and, and how is it influencing my child? We like to say that children with ADHD are much more environmentally sensitive than their same age peers. So if there's a noise, they'll be more distracted. If there's a lot of commotion, they might not be able to stay oriented or focused on what they're doing. Um, and that's why it's important to keep things mellow, chill out, you know, use it as a time to just maybe play a video game at that point, you know, to let them have that game for that period of time, but make sure there's a limit to it as well. Gene, I'm gonna give you a chance to talk, but I just have two more questions. And so parents sure. will often ask, you know, what about the generic? Should I insist on the brand? And then do they have to take it every day? Do, should we only take it during school? Again, um, no fixed rules. In most cases, the generics are working okay, although there are some long-acting generic preparations that have been found not to be as effective. So that's something to discuss with your prescriber. Um, the, the prescribing clinician needs to sort of explain the, the different, that the stimulants come in different long-acting, short-acting, extra-long-acting, not released till the next day acting. Um, so that's something that has to be individualized. I would say that whether a child should be on it every day, I recommend that they do take it on weekends because I don't think ADHD is just a school-related problem, you know. But some parents and some kids prefer to not take it, you know, on the weekends. So um, again, individual decisions, uh, worthwhile discussions. So let's get to uh, myths, misconceptions about stimulants. So. Let's bust some common myths and misconceptions. So let me state a few. Prescription medications lead to addiction and substance abuse. That's one. Another one, stimulant medications would make anyone perform better. Anyone run faster, jump higher, and be smarter. And the third one is ADHD meds anesthetize children. So do you hear any other misconceptions or we don't have that much time but but are those the big ones that you've heard tony well i also hear that um people fake their adhd to get medication so they'll you know you know the, the typical one is um college students who want to get you know something to help them as a study aid uh, the truth is that even though it doesn't make you smarter there's no question that a stimulant can keep you going longer right i mean that's part of what was discovered about it that made it quite an important option during periods of excessive, you know, mm -hmm. stress, right? 
why did soldiers or and they continue by the way to give air air um air force pilots uh stimulants when they're flying long missions so a it does keep you going longer especially with boring things um b there is an, another myth that sort of people can fake it in order to get drugs that's a very small number of people you would have to be suspicious if 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 there if there is no real evidence for the child or the adults um history of stimulants so we have to verify a lot when especially when we're um diagnosing college students or adults but when it comes to kids i mean i think the other myth from the kids standpoint is this pill is making me behave better and i think that's a really unfortunate belief i just think that that's you know, we have to say that this this medication is helping you make good choices. You're the one making the choices, not the pill. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're the one deciding you're going to do your homework or you're going to help with your chores or you're going to practice your your instrument or whatever you're doing to have fun. Uh, not the pill. The pill just gives you the ability to make better decisions. And um, one other myth, by the way, from, from the standpoint of how the child may also feel about it is that... Um, that it's it's something they don't want other people to know because other people are going to think they're, um, you know, cheating. Especially, you know, who really worried about this are high school kids. They think that, uh, you know, their their friends, if they know about it, are going to look at them and go, yeah, yeah, you don't really have this. So I think fear of embarrassment is another another. I don't know if that's a myth or just a a common a common experience of of what others view. Uh, as an unfair advantage that people may be getting. And what about addiction? Oh, we know that addiction is on everybody's mind, but the evidence is quite the contrary. At the very least, there's no difference. And in some studies, it shows that there's less less likelihood of getting addicted. Why? Because what addiction we think of, especially in people with ADHD, comes from untreated ADHD. It's a form of self-medication. So they'll try cocaine, they'll try methamphetamine, dangerous stimulants. Those are those are non-medical stimulants that are widely used that are dangerous, mostly because of the way that they're ingested. Um, but we know that methamphetamine and cocaine can have profound effects on the nervous system and are also classified as stimulants, although they're not medical stimulants. They're what you could call recreational stimulants. I'm sorry. I think another myth that is really concerning is that you hear often, uh, unfortunately, that ADHD is not real. And if the child would just study harder, they wouldn't be so lazy. And I think that that myth, you know, first of all, is is not true, but it really adds to the stigma and the shame and embarrassment around treatment. Um, and and it adds to the, the lowering of the self-esteem for those kids who are struggling. Yes, yes. Um, well, look. And it's not just true in the United States. Globally, there's a lot of stigma about having ADHD and a lot of mis- misunderstanding. And the the, the sort of the, what you just mentioned was the thought that if the child just tries harder or if the parents parented better, the child would be better behaved or better able to get things done. And it's all a bunch of baloney. Um, you know, I talk to medical students now whose parents still they think it ADHD is is a myth. And and it's um it's hard to argue with people who are convinced of something like that. I what I tend to say is 
I hope they can be informed about the fact that uh, we know that anywhere up to 8% of children and almost 5% of adults in the United States meet the criteria for ADHD. And in, in terms of adults, they have a lot of other problems on top of the ADHD. There's a lot of higher rates of bipolar disorder, of sub, you know, untreated ADHD is definitely linked to higher rates of substance use, depression, trouble with jobs, automobile accidents. So when I put it in the public health context, what I think is that ADHD is probably one of the most treatable disorders of children that last throughout the whole lifespan, that if you treat it early, you can prevent terrible public health outcomes. Better health will come from treating it and fewer automobile accidents and greater success in life. But no, you're right. It's a, it's a big, big fear people have. And I always say that oftentimes it's not the parents. It might be somebody else in the, in the family system, you know, that's giving them that message. Um, I just think we still have a lot of work to do. I have seen a destigmatization going on little by little. The social media is helping with people meeting other people with ADHD and learning about it. Um, but uh, when a parent says, look, I, I am ready to accept the diagnosis, but I don't want to start a medication, I always say, okay, we can hold off if that's what you prefer to do. I don't want to impose something that people aren't ready to, to take on. So now what about the shortage? Uh, that's That's been the worst scenario of all because it's already stigmatized and then parents cannot find the medications they need for their kids. And um, how do you understand? I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not in the pharma industry, but I it's fairly easy to make, right? <laughs> it's fairly easy to produce. I mean, this is not a complicated, modern, you know, uh, situation. So, how do you account for the fact that every year for the last four or five years, there's been a shortage. Pharmacies just don't have it. And then parents have to go look, look around, look around, look around and find and find. It. And sometimes they have to buy brand name because the generics aren't around. So that's right. So what's what's the what's the, at the bottom of this problem? Well, let's first start with the pharmaceutical industry as a whole, not just with stimulants, but with all prescription medications. Once medications stop being profitable for the companies that make them, there's less of an incentive to make a lot of them, okay? And you've seen shortage. we've seen shortages in cancer medications, we've seen shortages in diabetes medications, um, all because of, quote, the incentive for pharmaceutical companies to produce enough medication for, because the more, so there's an advantage to, to these pharmaceutical companies to watch very carefully how much of their medication is on the market. And what you just said, driving people to take brand name rather than generics is definitely part of the story. Okay, so then you've got the companies making these generic stimulants. In a sense, they want to increase their market share, but they can't because there's only so many tons of, med of stimulant allowed to be produced. So this gets into the Drug Enforcement Agency, that um, in 1965, there was the beginnings of a discussion about, um, you know, these stimulants being classified in a different way. And in 1971, they were put on a schedule, DEA schedule, uh, and they are highly regulated. 
And so one company cannot produce more than they were given the, the legitimate right to. So what happens then is there's a shortage in terms of the demand for stimulants has gone up, but the amount that is allowed to be produced every year by these laws has not gone up. But is that is that is that for just the generics or the generic and the brands? It's for so- all of them to, together. They're not letting more than a certain number of pills of either methylphenidate products or amphetamine products. But, but Tony, what's what's in it for the DEA to to to, to exert these controls? I mean, they're not making the money. No, not, the they, DEA they, is afraid of stimulant abuse and misuse. The stimulant the stimulants represent to the DEA a potential liability. Number one from what they work, what happened to to them through the opiate crisis. You know, the DEA said, oh, it's okay to have these these other forms of opiates. And as we all know, unfortunately, sadly, horrendously, uh, hundreds of thousands of people die every year uh, and have died over the years, not every year, but over the last decade uh, from these, these pain relieving medications. So what happened was the DEA became very concerned that they had not limited the access to opiates and they turned around and looked at stimulants. They noticed that stimulant abuse and misuse was going up, especially of compounds like methamphetamine. Um, So they now become very highly worried about that. There's actually going to be uh, next week, a major meeting in Washington, DC with the DEA and the Institute of Medicine and the FDA talking about the supply, safe supply of stimulant medication. It's all going to be about this crisis because the DEA was not trying to make it hard. They were trying to protect public health. And then then, there's one more group that we didn't talk about, which are the insurance insurance companies, because they want to limit access to because they're concerned also that more and more prescriptions are being written. And so everybody's on. Un, was unprepared for this. They were unprepared for the growing recognition and treatment of ADHD, the growing rise in demand for the for the medication, the strict restrictions on supply, and then the growing in attempts at at controlling costs. But, so but this look, is what but, I call but, but, a perfect storm. But look, if if it's not life threatening, like opiates. Uh, or on fentanyl or and and other and uh, you know for overdoses if what what's if if the risks of of death if are minimal if the risks of morbidity or of danger to the self is minimal then what's the worry about is it a gateway drug to other addictions for some people i mean what what is their basis for limiting the numbers i mean why don't they limit the number of gerd medications that is yeah, well, I always I always joke that if 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 this, if medications for ADHD were not a controlled substance, none of us in our field would be given as much. We would have much less heart, hardship, and so would our patients. But because the best medication for ADHD happens to be something that was put on that list by the Nixon administration, and you know the you know Attorney General John Mitchell, they were out to stamp out any kind of what they perceive to be threats to, I mean, obviously they went after people smoking marijuana, they went after people uh, for using opiates, and they went after people using stimulants. Stimulus was thrown in with all of those. 
and the medical reasons for using medication were not what what led it uh, to become a Schedule II drug. So we are stuck with this with the history of the of the Drug Enforcement Agency. Um, it's not a threatening. It's not a life threatening medication. But when you listen to the news and you listen to the way the DEA approaches it, they make no distinction. So when you think about it, statins like Lipitor and prednisone and some of the more and the antihypertensives that are the most common are considerably much more dangerous overall no than, than stimulants. They are no question <laughs> more dangerous, but they're not regulated. They're not put on this list of controlled substances. I think that we've, we look, I, I said this on the on point. I think parents and patients with ADHD should protest that these medications are scheduled to, to begin with. As you point out, they're really much safer than people think they are. And uh, we're doing a disservice and we're harming patients. But in the meantime, what can parents okay. do when they cannot buy this medication in the pharmacy and their child is struggling at school, struggling at home? Should they switch to another stimulant? Should they request brand? I've had some some kids say that, or parents say that they're rationing, like they're only giving it on certain days. I know, or it I know. Test. Isn't that awful? That it's is really awful. awful. So what are they supposed First, to do or what, what yeah. should they do? Okay. First of all, they talk to the prescribing clinician and say the following. I'm having trouble finding the medication. What do you think we should do? There are a couple of options. One is start looking wider. If that doesn't work, find out from the pharmacy when they're expecting the shipment. Because when the shipment comes in, if we can time our prescription right, they might be able to get there in time to get the prescription filled. If that doesn't work, I agree. You have to try a different if, if they're not, if say the medication you've been using isn't available, try an alternative. Now, should you use brand if push comes to shove? I've actually spoken to a couple of uh, ph pharmacy plans and insisted that until the generic was in, that they should agree with paying for the brand. And a couple of parents have been very successful at harassing their insurer and getting an override to allow them to get the brand because of the shortage. So yeah, the, but but no rationing so you don't give your child the medication they need is, I mean is 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 not a good idea. And I I always like to say, can you imagine if they said you had to ration your child's insulin? I mean, come on, it's, that it's is just unconscionable. I'm sorry. As a parent, should not be put in that predicament. Exactly, we are putting parents in untenable situations. So I'm I'm both enraged, but I'm also. Um, I'm really I'm really trying to empower parents to challenge the pharmacy plans. Gene told me to zip it, so I'm going to be quiet. Have nothing else to say. No, 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 no. You, <laughs> I, you're in charge of the closing today. You're in charge. Oh, of, I am. You're in charge of wrapping it up. Oh, okay. I think it's. I'd be happy to come back whenever you say, so we can, you know, continue the conversation. I think that what's really important to say in closing is that neurodiversity is a really important concept that more and more people are grasping and that people who have brains that are somewhat different gets penalized, stigmatized, and uh, marginalized. And I think that this is a good example of how the treatment for people with a very common and very debilitating disorder are, are looked at like, A, we don't believe you have it, and B, if you do have it, we're not gonna make it easy for you to get the treatment. We're gonna make it harder. 
And we didn't even get into the problem of finding good therapists and right. people who can work with the family or work with the teachers. I mean, there's so much need out there. And, it, you know, I always like to say ADHD is not about Ritalin or about Adderall. It's about well, well, helping people grow up and become productive human beings in a world that's increasingly information, you know, information heavy. I was going to say, we should have a part two. I well, think we need to have a part two and three, but we are yeah. so thankful for you joining us today. This has been a, and I'm going to say my little corny pun again, a stimulating conversation. <laughs> um, and, and we're going to wrap up, but is there anything you're looking forward to in, in the next week or so? Uh, yes, I personally am. Um, I'm, well, I was looking forward to this. This was actually a highlight for me, but <laughs> but I am going to go see the Nutcracker Suite this weekend, which is one of my favorite ballets. Oh, that's awesome. It is great. So thank you, Tony. And thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be sure to subscribe. So be sure to subscribe and consider leaving us a review. And we'll see you back on the third Thursday of next month. I'm Gene Barrison. And I'm Khadija Luke-Watkins. I'll see you next time. Today's episode is about stimulants. Wait, I was supposed to say we're going to have a stimulating conversation. Oh, okay, go ahead. And we're going to talk about myths. And we're going to talk about misconceptions and managing the, the, the shortage. Okay, okay, so you go. You took, so you a, go. You took, away, you took away my, my uh Start intro. from the beginning. Okay, I'll start from, from the beginning. the top. I okay. saw the script and I thought Khadija had a really great line there. And I right? Think-